you know, with the Lana flights, I, uh, I've seen spectacular flights. The one Lana flight that I had was on the Swainson's, uh, not a Swainson's, uh, Cape Franklin, which is quite a big Franklin, the Coxway up to about a, uh, just over a kilo. And uh, the Lana came down and smacked this cock uh, so hard that both of them passed out. And uh, there I came upon the hawk and the quarry lying on the ground next to each other. And I thought, which one shall I grab first? <laughs> Obviously grab the quarry because the hawk you can always lure down later. Hey, how's it going, everyone? Welcome back for another episode of the Falconry Told Podcast. And we're winding down now. We're down to the last three or four episodes or so of the uh, Cape Falconry series here. And uh, we uh, really appreciate you continuing to tune in and listen and really hope that you have enjoyed this series so far. And want to give a special thanks, of course, to the Cape Falconry Club for helping to make this series happen and for organizing it all and for the invite to come out and have us share their stories with the rest of the world. So thank you very much to them. And also a big thank you to the Falconry Heritage Trust for the small grant to help pay for the travel expenses and the airfare to help make this series happen as well. If you want to find out more about them or contribute to their cause, which of course is helping to preserve the cultural heritage of falconry around the world for future generations, then just head to falconryheritage.org. And also a big thank you for the continued support of Baba Yaga Crafts from Poland. If you haven't had a chance to get your hands on any of his really nice handmade falconry gear yet, I highly recommend you do so. It's well worth it and well worth the money and your time to check it out. It's become a staple of my falconry and personally, I can't think of using any other anklets or jesses right now. Uh, but like I said, if you haven't had a chance to check out any of his stuff yet, head to Baba Yaga Goshawk on Instagram, and you can also get his contact information from our website at falconrytold.com. And I think this will be another episode that you all find very entertaining and informative. Dr. Edmund Utley is another falconer who is responsible in part for getting falconry legalized in his respective area and he also has a, an interesting history in practicing medicine as well. I found that to be particularly uh, interesting. You'll find out more about that as the episode goes on and, and why I probably uh, was interested in that. But anyway, I won't go into that now, but I was also fortunate to be able to pay a visit to his winery and see his vineyard and try out some of the organic wines that he produces very interesting guy and I hope you really enjoy this this conversation as much as I enjoyed recording it and hearing it in person so anyway we'll go ahead and just jump right into this conversation with Dr. Edmund Utley here we go thank you for um for doing this today and like I said I, I appreciate um, everything you did earlier in the week too and um, I really enjoyed your wine and seeing your your um, you know property and everything and no it was a, it was a really good time I'm as I was telling you just a little bit ago I'm really a, a big fan of your of your port wine that was definitely my favorite and right. I will be picking up at least a few bottles <laughs> but um, but yeah so as far as that goes like how 
I mean, how long you said it was like 30 something years that you're that you lived there uh, on the farm? Yes, we've been there 33 years. Yeah. Yeah. Came in 1990. 1990. And I mean, out of curiosity, what's what was the process like for you kind of cultivating and and getting that to the point where, you know, you were it, it, it pretty much to where it is today? I mean, how long of a process has that has that been? Well, Rome wasn't built in a day. Uh, it's a slow process. It wasn't something that I'd learnt, um, you know, at university or at college. Uh, it was just learnt in the school of hard knocks. Make lots of mistakes and uh, go to the specialists, find out people that know what they're doing and get their advice and follow that advice. And uh, that's that's the way I've, I've learnt all along. Uh, so uh, it, it wasn't a huge change from what I was uh, uh, qualified to do, I, I'm a veterinarian, and uh, the only difference is that these um, animals don't run away from you when you need to treat them, <laughs> great fines, <laughs> I mean. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, they get diseases they need to be treated, and uh, principles of disease-host interactions are fairly straightforward and similar, whether it's animals or people or plants, uh, first principles apply. Yeah, I mean, I, I find all that really fascinating because I know very little to nothing about it. You know, mm -hmm. with um, I, I do have friends that that have um, experience with you know winemaking and and I know of people who you know have uh, you know vineyards and have done all that. But I've, I was really surprised to see how much chemistry there was in it. Yeah, well, that's the interesting part of it, of course. Once you really start understanding what's going on. Uh, it, you know, I'd, uh, I did quite a bit of work with electron microscopy, and um, the the deeper you go into any subject, whether it's a cell or whether it's a plant or whether it's making wine, the more you learn about it, the more you know how little you know about it, and the more you realize how much more there is to see and to learn. So I always say that, you know, you, you never stop learning. No, and pretty much any facet of life, yeah. I guess, pretty much anything we do. And as the old uh, old saying goes, if you if you think you know it all or learned it all, then yeah, you, yeah. you have a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, well, I mean, about how long do you think it was before you know by your trial and error, learning with all that? How long do you think it was before you really made something that you thought was you know really, I don't know, like. <laughs> How many batches did you have to go through that were just like? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> well, fortunately, I cut my teeth as a child. Um, from around about when I was fifteen, I was making wines out of uh, flowers and out of uh, fruits, you know, peaches and mulberries and plums and that sort of stuff, which we grew in the garden in Johannesburg. Um, so, uh, you know, the actual winemaking process itself is is not particularly difficult because grapes are, you know, beautifully. Uh, composed, uh, their structure, their composition is just right for making wine. So, you know, you, you're starting with a, with a good raw material. Um, so, uh, yeah, and of course, in the early days, in the 1990s, um, I didn't know how to farm. So I had to first learn how to farm. And um, that's, uh, in those days, there was no Google, there was no internet. You had to write letters, uh, you had to read books and so on. And, and, and getting information was, was difficult. And I always used to say that, uh, 
you know, the point about an education is not teaching you what you need to know, but teaching you where to find what you need to know. And so um, that was really, I guess, uh, the starting point is finding out what I need to know in order to do what I'm hoping to do. And uh, the whole process was a slow one. In the beginning, it was just a case of growing grapes and dropping them off at the co-op and, um, you know, getting your money once a year. Um, but uh, as the time went by, I realized that what I was doing or the way that I was farming was not ultimately sustainable uh, because it just clashed with my understanding of disease-host interactions. And so I <clears throat> slowly changed over to organic. It wasn't like just today we're going to decide to be organic. It was over a period of two, three, four years that we slowly, slowly changed. In the beginning, we did, we experimented with a bit of permaculture, which I, I still use. It's a very useful uh, type of agriculture. And um, yeah, slowly we, we changed over. And then I realized that just to produce grapes without actually adding any value wasn't going to be economically viable in the long run. So I had to add the value by making the wine. And uh, the cooperative wasn't interested in giving me any premium for my grapes uh, that were organic. And so uh, we started on a very small scale. We pressed the wine by foot. We moved the juice around by gravity. Um, and then gradually, every year, just got a little bit more organized and sophisticated to a point that we are at the moment now with a full-blown winery and distillery and, yeah, capacity of about 50 tons. Yeah, it's all really cool stuff. And like I said, I just find that so interesting because there's so much that goes into it and everything that you were describing whenever you were telling everybody about the different types of, of wines and stuff that you that you produce. And I mean, I was, like I said, it was really floored to hear about you know, the timing needed to be needing to be so exact on everything. And, you know, I just, I just can't imagine all the work that, that goes into that. Yeah. Well, it's, it's fun also. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would have to be, I yeah. Mean, it would, yeah, yeah. yeah. It would have to be for you to want to, to deal with to all that. But, it, yeah. 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 Well, same with falconry too, mm -hmm. I guess. But yeah. <laughs> I always uh, say, you know, the easy part is actually making the product. The difficult part is selling it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and as far as that goes, I mean, have you um, enjoyed a lot of success and positive feedback with, with everything? Yeah, yeah. You know, there was uh, a dairyman once um, which sold his herd and uh, planted grapevines and made wine and so on. And, and people asked him, why did you do this? And he said, well, you know, nobody told me how nice my rich, creamy milk was. But boy, do I get compliments for my wonderful wine. <laughs> and, so, and I guess that's it. There's, there's always uh, good feedback when it comes to making wine or brandy or port or, you know, liqueurs. Somebody's going to like it. That's for sure. Yeah, and you said you were the only falconer in this area, or right? That, that, that yeah, has in a South wine. Africa with the yeah. winery. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, and you know the thing I noticed about it too, and the and the other thing I had no idea about, which I don't know why I didn't know about this before, didn't hear about this in passing at least before, is the fact is the um, you know the contribution of you know sulfates, you know, giving you headaches and and all that kind of stuff. And you know the one thing I did notice about your your wine is that you know I normally the reason why I don't drink wine or haven't really had an affinity for it is because it usually gives me a headache and makes my blood pressure go mm -hmm. <laughs> you know when you can hear your pulse you know yeah. <laughs> it's like it's it's uh it's always when I drink wine yeah and um you know I was 
I mean, with the organic side of things and, um, you know, the fact that you don't use the sulfates in yours and stuff, I, I thought that was really pretty cool. Yeah. The other thing I thought was an interesting tidbit that you shared too was, uh, you know, the part about, you know, the, the organic aspect of things and, um, you know, the fish that, you know, mm -hmm. they thought was, you know, extinct. extinct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I share some of that a little bit because I think people might find that interesting too. Yeah. Well, you know, there was a little fish called the Burger of a Redfin, which is uh, uh, not a particularly um, dramatic looking fish. It's a small fish, a couple of centimeters long, and uh, it's, um, has a red fin only in the breeding season and of course there's red fins all over the world uh, but each little unique ecosystem has its own specific red fin and the one that was declared extinct was the Berg River red fin um, the river that runs past our farm um, is a tributary of the Berg River and uh, the reason it went extinct or was thought to be extinct was that um, it's, a, it's an indicator species. So it's, as soon as you have agricultural pesticides or any uh, too much nitrates from fertilizers or any kind of um, disturbance to the, the pristine environment from conventional farming, then the fish dies out. <clears throat> so you would expect it to be found in the, in the headwaters, in the um, upper reaches of the rivers where there's no farming and the water is clean and pristine. And the problem is that those are exactly the areas where it's cold enough to introduce bass and trout. And as a result of those predatory fish, the uh, Berg River Redfin just uh, disappeared in trout breakfast. So um, uh, it, was, it was declared extinct. And then it was discovered in the little bit of river that runs past our farm. Um, the reason being that we're too low for the bass and the trout and we're above the area where the uh, pesticides are taking place and with the organic farming we uh, we have this uh, pristine piece of river that runs past us and uh, as a result of that we made a wine which we called not extinct and it's a collaboration with um, endangered wildlife trust of south africa and they get 10 rand for every bottle that we sell uh, which goes towards their conservation effort, and uh, it's a very good collaboration. Very cool. Yeah, like I said, I was I was overall very impressed, and you do have um, a very beautiful you know property and and um, you know operation there. And um, like I said, I'm fortunate that feel fortunate to have been able to to visit there. You know, during this this mm -hmm. little excursion, and um, yeah, I mean, like I said, thanks for for sharing all that. Yeah, <laughs> you're welcome. But. Um, but yeah, so kind of moving uh, topics a little bit. How long now? I mean, how how many years has it been since you you started practicing falconry? Well, I started as a schoolboy in standard eight, so uh, you know I've been flying birds for over forty years. Um, <clears throat> and um, in the beginning, of course, it was illegal where I was living in in the Transvaal. Uh, and um, then it was legalized there, and so I joined up with the Transvaal Falconry Club. Uh, but uh, shortly after that, <clears throat> after I'd finished my studies, I moved to the Cape, and it was illegal in the Cape. Uh, this is the whole of the Cape from Northern Cape, Western Cape, and Eastern Cape altogether. It used to be a single province. And uh, the director of nature conservation at that stage said that over his dead body would there be any falconers in the Cape. So, uh, of course, everybody was that was flying any birds was driven underground, <clears throat> and I went to the authorities and, with a substantial amount of effort uh, over a, 
about a two-year period, managed to convince them that we were not going to be an administrative burden to them. We were not going to be a conservation threat to them. And in fact, we were going to have some very significant conservation benefits to them. Uh, and they uh, b um, allowed us to start the club. Uh, you know, this is a long time ago. My memory kind of fades me, but I think it's around about 1990 or so, or 1989. Um, yeah, I think it was 89. But anyway, uh, the club was started, and uh, I was uh, chairman for the first 15 years or so for my sins. Uh, very happy to have passed the baton on to somebody else now. Uh, so uh, in the beginning, um, the, it, we had quite a lot of freedom uh, in terms of um, uh, hunting seasons and, and what birds we were allowed and um, yeah, how it worked. And uh, more recently, they've uh, applied a whole power more administrative uh, hurdles for us to get over. Um, but the club is still up and running all of these years later. And I'm very uh, uh, proud of the fact that the hard work that I put in has uh, borne fruit and it's been, uh, been fun, um, largely fun. I mean, there's been bad bits in between, but on the whole, it's been fun. And um, now it's great for me to be able to come to meet like this where where I'm, I'm not actually flying anything myself at the moment, I'm getting a bit long in the tooth, but um, I can enjoy other people uh, flying their birds. I don't need personally to fly it myself. I'm very happy to go out with somebody else that flies, and I get just as much pleasure watching their birds fly and uh, sometimes catching something, sometimes not catching something. Uh, that's the way that falconry works. And, uh, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to have been part of this right from the very beginning. Uh, I've not missed a single field meet since its inception. Very cool. Well, before we talk a little bit more about that, though, I mean, just out of curiosity, I mean, was there a particular moment, though, like whenever you were younger and, and just starting to get into falconry? Like, was there a particular event or a particular thing that happened that triggered your, your interest in, in becoming a falconer? Uh, yes, yeah, certainly there was. Uh, I was on holiday in the Cape and uh, on my grandfather's farm, and, and one of the laborers uh, had managed fairly accurately to throw a stone at a black shouldered kite and hit him on the head. And uh, this bird came tumbling down, um, and uh, it was brought to me um, as a 15 year old schoolboy. And uh, I had it for four days. I, it was basically concussed, and it just needed to have a little bit of time to rest. And um, I let the bird go. I, you know, my family said, sorry, these things are not allowed to be kept in captivity and you have to let them go. So with a very heavy heart, I let it go <clears throat> and then spent the next two years reading up on it uh, in old Encyclopedia Britannicas. And, and of course, in those days, there was very, very little literature. We, we're talking about 1973. Um, it was very difficult to get anything uh, so all of the info that I was able to lay my hands on was pretty out-of-date stuff. Uh, but it nevertheless got me a solid grounding in terms of what um, what was involved. Um, and then I joined up with a, with the Transvaal Falconry Club. They'd, they'd recently become legalized. Uh, passed the test, first shot that they gave me. And because I'd done 
whatever reading I could, I'd, I'd done. And of course, they were equally limited with the amount of literature that was available then. Um, and they gave me uh, initially uh, a rehab uh, black kite, which I then trained up and uh, got ready to be released again. Uh, that was successfully released. And then uh, they gave me a step buzzard, which had been shot in the wing. So again, just needed to be kept until it was healed. Uh, didn't need any training on uh, on how to hunt or anything like that. That bird was, uh, was a haggard bird and... Uh, yeah, basically trained it up until it was flying free, and then off it went. And after that, I went on the uh, uh, the lanners. I had quite a number of lanners, one after another, and you know various other birds in between. I uh, took a bit of a breather during my veterinary studies, uh, simply because there wasn't time to fly a bird while you're in full time study. And uh, picked it up after after qualifying. Um, flew black sparrowhawks. Uh, this was all in the Transvaal, and uh, it, yeah. And then when I came down to the Cape, um, all of a sudden was told, "Sorry, you can't do this anymore." And that was that was quite difficult. Yeah, I bet. I mean, yeah, especially you know doing all that work and you know juggling, and then yeah, I mean moving to a place where all of a sudden it's just. You know, <laughs> yeah. sorry about you. And I can, Tough. yeah, <laughs> no, I can imagine. Well, and I'm assuming then probably that, you know, some of those early experiences with getting some of those, those birds that you ended up rehabbing and stuff, mm -hmm. or was that part of the catalyst for deciding for you to become a, a vet? Uh, no, I don't think so. Uh, for me to become a vet was actually quite a straightforward decision. Um, you know, my, my dad was a doctor. He he died when I was very young, uh, and my two elder brothers both became doctors. And I thought, my word, you know, four doctors in the family is over the top. <laughs> and so, uh, because I'd I'd been involved with uh, with birds, uh, particularly ducks uh, and geese, when when I was younger, uh, I used to keep ducks and um, try and get a bit of pocket money by selling their eggs and so on, learning a few basic principles on uh, economics. Um, I it kind of was logical to go and study vet science, but as it turns out, I I uh, started at uh, Wits University with a with a straight BSc because in those days you needed to do a, B, a BSc first year before you got accepted, uh, which is a very good screening because um, you know you can have fantastic matric results, but it doesn't mean you're going to do any good at university. Uh, but if you do reasonably well in your first year, then chances are you will carry on. In fact, when I was in my first year, uh, the lecturer walked in and said, uh, take a look at the guy in front of you, the guy at your left and the guy on the right, and out of the four of you, only one are going to get through this year. Uh, well, you know, statistics, 25% pass their first year. So mm, yeah. <laughs> but it does change it when you actually look at these guys and say, okay, who's it going to be? Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah. Yeah, I bet so, you that was probably pretty intense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, uh, yeah, then then at the end of my first year, I didn't get into vet school straight away, and so I started my second year. And then somebody dropped out, and I was on the waiting list, and so I got in. So, yeah. And as far as, um, you know, kind of the juggling, I, I mean, how many years were you initially – you know, flying birds or training or not really training, but I mean, how many, how many years were you working with birds as part of the, um, you know, the initial club that you were in? And then like, how long was the, the, the gap where you weren't flying because of studies? Uh, 
Uh, well, you know, the, the, the vet science is uh, five and a half years, or it was when I was doing it, it's six years now. But mm. uh, so, so for those five and a half years, it was just basically cut out of my, out of my life. Yeah. Uh, pretty well, everything got cut out of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but uh, after that, I picked up the black spa straight away because I was in, in Pretoria. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, you know, so was you said the black spar was the was the first bird that you got after that then? Yeah, uh, and uh, it was the first bird that I actually well not quite the first bird but yeah it was the first bird that really hunted successfully. Um, as one of the falconers told me, uh, he's never seen a dud black spar, uh, but by which he was basically meaning if your black spar is not doing anything, the problem lies with you. It doesn't lie with the bird. Hmm. Um, and uh, yeah. I've seen that many times. I think we're blessed with huge amounts of uh, flyable birds here. You know, um, there's yeah, we we really do have a great variety of of birds that are uh, good falconry birds. Uh, so, yeah, I I always say to people that are asking advice, you know, what bird should I fly? I say, well, what quarry do you have? Once you got the quarry sorted out then it's fairly straightforward to decide what bird to fly mm -hmm. but it's a big mistake to say no you know i want to fly this bird and then you say oh shucks you know i have to drive an hour and a half to get to a place where i can find for argument's sake a duck or a franklin or a you know something like that so um yeah it's very important to make sure that you've got your quarry base sorted out first and then you choose what bird to fly well i mean just you know, kind of species specific though i mean like um I, there's we, we kind of all have our theories you know falconers in our in our theories but but i know like passage coops for example i mean i there i don't know if it's just you know we've had these debates and stuff amongst all of all of us that you know like certain species it just seems like you know because of their extremely nervous and high-strung tendencies and things like that that you know, it's just, it's harder to find, you know, a, a percentage of them that's, that's willing to, you know, or, or, you know, has the capacity to, you know, be a, a, a falconry bird. But I didn't know what your thoughts were for that you know, in particular regarding, you know, black spars, because it seems to be the general consensus bird that is closest to like, like our passage coops in that regard from what everybody's been saying. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, we have a, a fairly structured, uh, learning process in in our club, so it, it's it's different from the American system where you you know you're either an apprentice for a year or else you're just a falconer and you right, can go yeah. and do whatever you please. Uh, with us, we go through um, year apprentice. After that, we go through a period of of um, what we call a C grade, which is uh, a novice falconer, and then we go on once they've proved certain capabilities and and we limit the number the type of hawk to the to the different grades. Once they've gone through that, they go on to become a B grade, and then that opens up other hawks for them to fly. And then eventually they become what's called an A grade or Master Faulkner, uh, which is really a sort of an honorary title to say that um, we think that you really have achieved great things with falconry. So uh, by far the bulk of the club are what we call general falconers. Um, and... Uh, this is really as it should be, because uh, with a decent uh, mentorship program, with a decent structure, uh, I I don't believe in chucking people in at the deep end and and you know giving 
difficult birds to people who really don't know what they're doing. Um, give them easy birds. Uh, I know that easy birds can sometimes give people a sense of um, uh, sort of confidence which they don't deserve. Uh, the Harris Hawk falls into that category. But, you know, having said that, uh, if the Harris Hawk is a good starting point for somebody to fly, well, you know, go ahead. But um, I, I would far prefer the, the young falconers, young in, in, in experience, not in age, um, to, to start off with a bird like an African goshawk. Uh, they're, they're fairly robust and they're fairly forgiving and they can take a fair amount of mistakes and uh, they can teach a falconer a lot. And after that, they go on to one of the other birds. Um, sort of tongue in cheek, I've always said that the next bird that people often go on to is uh, is Alana. But uh, Alana uh, can teach a smart falconer a lot of things, and uh, a dumb falconer will not learn terribly much from Alana. <laughs> they're smart birds. They really are smart birds. Yeah. Um, so, uh, yeah, often people want to go from um, um, the, the African goshawk onto a black sparrowhawk. Um, with us, the the really difficult birds are the are the small short wings, the things like the musket red-breasted sparrowhawk, or the um, musket or the female little sparrowhawk. Uh, you know, I mean, little sparrowhawk. Uh, I flew one once. That this thing was was weighing hundred grams. Uh, you know, it's it's really really tricky to go and fly that thing right, and you've got to get that weight. You've got to weigh it twice a day and feed it twice a day and it was a rehab bird, but I managed to get it to flying free and then uh, was able to release it. Again, somebody shot it with a pellet gun or something like that. <clears throat> but from that perspective, the uh, veterinary science has been very useful because I've been able to fix a lot of birds that would otherwise not have been fixed. And not only that, once they've been fixed, we need to get them back into the wild again. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm an honorary nature conservation officer in, in the Western Cape, Cape Nature. Uh, and that's also been useful because, uh, you know, it, it just means that Cape Nature has recognized the role that uh, not only I play, but also the Cape Falconry Club plays. Well, and so kind of, like I said, it, it's, it sounds like then that because of the way the mentorship structure is here and you know you you guys are very much you know there's there's a lot of control and a lot of um thought put into the type of mentor you know for the right type of person and yeah. and the right type of speech so i mean there in other words the, there's a greater chance of having success with some of these harder you know some of sure. these harder birds yeah. like the black spars and stuff mm -hmm. because of the fact that you're you're pairing someone a, a mentor with someone you know, that, um, has the experience to teach them to be more successful. And, and, um, you know, the, the fact that, uh, you know, certain people that are, you know, getting these birds, it's not as easy for them to get them as, you know, if, if they don't have somebody, you know, experience that's assigned to them already mm -hmm. with all that. So, yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, I, that's probably a very good thing, you know, and I, yeah, I think <laughs> yeah. so. I, I think so. Yeah. yeah. Cause I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the, one of the traps that a lot of, um, you know, falconers in the U S once they get their general license, you know, it's, it's almost kind of a, a cliche that it's like, Oh, I'm going to fly a passage coop now. <laughs> you know, yeah. And, uh, and I know I, I kind of fell somewhat into that trap too or whatever, but, um, but no, that's, that's cool. I mean, that's a, it's, it sounds like, 
your system and and just judging from all the conversations that I've had so far this week that you know you you guys have really you guys have really thought about a lot of those pitfalls and how yeah. to and how to avoid them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, ultimately, if uh, Falconer makes a mess, it brings the whole sport into disrepute. You know, you can't. Yeah. It's difficult to to say to the public who sees somebody doing something they shouldn't be doing to say, well, you know, actually he's only a he's only a C grade and he's still learning. You know, you 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 don't want boo boos. You mm-hmm. you want things to run smoothly and run yeah. properly. Yeah. Well, and so kind of going back then to you know, the influence then or going back to the, the formation of, of the club. And I mean, I'm assuming then, you know, it, it didn't sit well, obviously that, that whenever you came here, that you couldn't do something you've been doing for a long time, you know, yeah, and, sure. and yeah. I'm sure that probably had a lot of motivation for you. It gave you a lot of motivation then to kind of be involved in, you know, some of the, the early formation of, of all this to be able to have it legalized again. And, I mean, if you don't care, just just talk about just some of the those hurdles that you had to to jump through initially to even get those talks going. I think it's good for a lot of people to hear these type of things. Yeah, well, um, I I thought that it'd be a good idea to start a conservation project which used peregrines. Now, you see, the big problem was that peregrines were um, thought to be exceedingly rare in the Cape, and on record in in 1987 when I landed in the Cape. Uh, there were six pairs on uh, six breeding pairs that were that were known. So uh, I went to uh, Percy Fitzpatrick Institute and I said to them, "Look, this is the plan that I have. We want to go and get peregrines and we want to hack them on electric power lines because uh, the we know that Lanners breed on power lines and Marshall Eagles breed on power lines and the whole pile of stuff breeds there, but peregrines don't." They breed on cliffs and they're very difficult to find and there's very few of them here. And I think it would be great if we could just push up the peregrine population a little bit. Um, and on top of it, it would mean that there would be uh, birds available for falconers. And, uh, you know, the ramifications are quite uh, quite significant. So I put together a, pro- a, a proposal, a protocol. I said, this is how we're going to do it. And uh, they they gave me the rubber stamp and they said, yeah, cool, nice pro- nice nice program, thinks it's a good idea. And so I went to Nature Conservation and I said to them, this is what I want to do and I want to get the permits to take these birds from the wild. And they said, sorry, you can't because they're too few birds. So I said, well, okay, fine, no problem. If I can find some nests which you don't have on record, then technically they don't exist as far as you're concerned. Uh, can I take birds from there? And they say, oh, no, 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 <laughs> no, 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 you, sorry, you can't do that. So uh, then around about that time, I linked up with a fellow called Dave Pepler. And uh, Dave Pepler was, uh, uh, he was basically working for uh, the Department of Nature Conservation at the university. So in other words, not not the government department, but the university department. And he was doing work on peregrines, and and his work with Rob Martin showed that peregrines were in fact not rare at all in this part of the world, uh, and that his analysis showed that there were over two hundred pairs between Citrus Dole and Swellendam, which is which is uh, you know roughly two hundred kilometres north of Cape Town to two hundred kilometres uh, east of Cape Town, <clears throat> and on the peninsula itself they're sitting with somewhere around uh, at that stage seven or eight pairs just on the Cape, on Table Mountain itself. Subsequently, it's increased a whole lot more as people became aware of what to look for and where to find them and so on. Anyway, so I then went back to Cape Nature and I said, this is the work that's done. Uh, you know, you guys are a bunch of mumparas. Um, there's 
lots of peregrines here. Why can't you give me permits? And they said, no, sorry, you can't have, can't have permits for it. So I was in exasperation. I said, well, okay, can I import peregrines? Oh, yes, of course you can import peregrines. You know, captive bred uh, peregrines, no problem whatsoever. So I got hold of uh, Walter Benerick in uh, Germany. Once again, you know, no email, no internet, no, you know, write letters. And, uh, and again, it was connections. I managed to get hold of him. He was one of the uh, Deutsche Falkenorden uh, directors, one of the chiefs there. And uh, he said he had contact with some German breeders and they were prepared to sell me uh, two pairs of German peregrines. So I got the agriculture import permits in order. I got the CITES permits in order. I got everything wrapped up and imported these birds um, with, a, with a colleague of mine. And the two of us went into this business together. And uh, the net result is that I bred the first captive, captive bred peregrine in South Africa. Uh, this was, I think, 1989 or 19, yeah, 89, correct. 1989, she hatched out the egg. Um, and uh, around about the same time, there was a youngster who subsequently joined the club, but he, you know, there was no club in those days because it was all illegal, uh, went and trapped a passage peregrine in Stellenbosch. And I got wind of this, and I went to Nature Conservation. I said, look, number one, I'm breeding these birds. Here's the proof. Uh, number two, uh, youngsters are going out and trapping these birds, and they shouldn't be doing this. And if we were able to have a club which could be self-policing, then we wouldn't have this nonsense going on. And so they then gave me the permit to go and confiscate this bird. Uh, and then I rehabilitated it. And with great fanfare, we let it go. And uh, Nature Conservation was there and, um, you know, all fine and jolly. The long and the short of it was that that was really the catalyst that tipped the balance. And then they said, yeah, look, we can see that given the right management, these guys are going to be policing themselves and uh, informing us of, of illegal activity. And we can you know, prosecute where we need to from there. And I must say for, you know, over 20 years, uh, we had a fantastic relationship with Cape Nature uh, more recently, the uh, wheels are falling off the lorry a little bit in terms of um, government departments. Uh, Cape Nature is running short of staff. They're running short of everything. They're running short primarily of competent people. And um, as a result of that, it's becoming um, quite difficult. But I'll, I'll leave those difficulties to other people who are more up to date with it to, to, to fill you in on the details. But <laughs> the point is that uh, in, in the early stages, there was just complete resistance. You, you are not going to do this to a total about turn. And then every year we gave in a hunting report. And uh, I, I can't remember how many papers I published, probably about 10 or 15 conservation papers that I published during the time that I was acting as chairman of the club. And of course, uh, every year we sent in nest records to uh, to Cape Nature. And Cape Nature was very grateful for this because all of a sudden we were the eyes and the ears on the ground, giving them the information that they needed to know 
what is the actual status of of the the, the um, conservation of these birds? And I said to them straight, I said, look, you know, you are never going to see a peregrine sitting in your office in, in the middle of Cape Town. Uh, you need us to go out into the felt and to go and spend time. And I mean, we're all complete lunatics. We spend <laughs> inordinate amounts of time and money and petrol and stuff driving around, just looking for birds, seeing them, writing it down, recording the fact that these birds are breeding here and, uh, you know, these are how many chicks have hatched out. And this is, you know, good, solid observational data that we fed free of charge. You know, nobody was employed, nobody, it cost Cape Nature nothing. Yeah, and that was what I was going to say was, I mean, it, it sounds like you were just basically doing a bunch of free labor for them. And of course. I mean, yeah, and, and why wouldn't they be accepting of that? Or at least yeah. why, <laughs> surely they would be way less uh, apt to tell you no yeah. on yeah. for anything. Yeah, and, and in fact, um, the Cape club is is unique in that sense uh compared with the other clubs in in south africa is that we've always had a very strong conservation orientated approach to what we're doing and we uh, the the kind of modus operandi has been to say look if we stop being of benefit to cape nature then they're gonna stop making our lives easy and gonna make it difficult for us and, and that's quite to a degree what's actually been happening lately yeah and it's uh it's really important to have good relationships sure. with, with the it's uh, key it's yeah. absolute key we yeah. you know and we did our bit for it um yeah <laughs> well i mean i i commend you for that i mean not not everybody's willing to take up that mantle but somebody has to and um you know i mean it's i, I can't imagine you know, the, the initial hurdles and, and dealing with all that, especially while you're juggling a veterinary practice and, and everything else. I mean, how was, how was that? I mean, did, I mean, in the early days, I mean, did you struggle to find time to fly a bird and also be, a, you know, <laughs> for, form a club and also have a vet practice? I mean, well, at the time I was working at the university in Cape Town at Khrushchev uh, Hospital, I was, um, they, they got me, that's the reason why I came to the Cape, is that they needed somebody to sort out their sperm bank. Uh, and in those days, the vets were quite a lot uh, further advanced in, in artificial reproduction than, than the doctors were. So, so that was my first brief, was to sort out the, the sperm bank, which, which I did, turned it around and made it profitable and showed them how to how to do it so that um, you know they still maintain the pregnancy rate that they were hoping for, and um, and yet could make a lot of money out of this business. Hmm. Uh, then after that, they said, "No, I must start working on the freezing of the embryos." And uh, so, because what was happening is in the IVF laboratories that the, the women would go and produce a uh, you know ten, fifteen eggs after being super ovulated and then they would put those fertilized eggs, they were only allowed to put four of them back in again because of the risk of multiple pregnancies. And so the other whatever was left over, they would just leave in the incubator and just they would they would die. You know, why they didn't just flush them down the loo immediately, I I don't know. But they kind of thought it they felt it's better to just let them die in the incubator than uh, so I said, no, 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 look guys, you give me these embryos and I'll freeze them. And then if the woman doesn't fall pregnant on the first time, we've got, you don't need to super ovulate her again because you can just use a natural cycle and you can defrost these embryos. And, um, and that's exactly what happened. So I got the first frozen baby in South Africa. It happened to be twins, actually. 
which was very exciting and 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 very satisfying. Um, around about the same time, I was doing my PhD, um, and then uh, I decided that uh, after you know pretty close on ten years in practice uh, in in government practice, uh, it was time for me to go into private practice, and so. Um, I opened a practice in Brackenfell, just uh, that's outside the Cape Town. Now it's part of the suburbs. In those days, it was close to the country. <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I just uh, built up a practice from nothing. Um, in And a uh, couple of years' time, I thought, no, now it's time for me to bail. And during that time, I was doing my PhD. Uh, so I finished up that, handed it in, got that degree, and then uh, decided it's time for a change. And, when farming, so. <laughs> that's crazy. That's a that's one hell of a of a curve, you know. Yeah. And and um, you know, I mean, doing vet medicine and then working your way into into human fertility, and then yeah. <laughs> and and that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> that's well, you know, I burn the candle at both ends. Oh <laughs> uh, well, I can relate to that. Mm. I understand. Yeah. Well, man, it sounds like you're a pretty pretty well-versed individual then I've had a lot of interesting experiences that's um, a better full life yeah <laughs> <laughs> well and and you know you mentioned briefly too that you were the you know first person to to do you know the raptor breeding side of things too or the um or well, the particular the, 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 par the peregrine i mean yeah. yeah yeah just i mean how much work did it did it take you to to have your first successful you know clutch with that and everything well um you know i uh, made a homemade incubator out of a cardboard box with a little ether wafer and some light bulbs, <laughs> light bulbs being the heat source. And um, to, I had a pair of a peregrines, my friend, my colleague had the other pair and my, my pair laid a single egg, uh, which I then incubated and, and hatched. Yeah. Hmm. Man. Well, that's, it's like I said, that's very interesting. Yeah, you, um, yeah, you kind of just went from one thing to the other to the other. And yeah, that's, that's nuts. I don't yeah. know. I, um, <laughs> I mean, you, did you have a family during this time too? Uh, well, yeah, I was married. Yeah. Um, uh, I was married for seven years. We, we got married in 83. And then, uh, when we moved to the farm, I said, it's now time. That was in 1990. So, we, mm -hmm. you know, seven years, just the two of us. Then I said, no, I think it's it's now time to have kids. Um, yeah. And uh, so we have two children. They were both born on the farm. Um, and uh, they both now left home. One yeah. One's a doctor specializing in ophthalmology and the other's a vet. So, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Apple didn't fall far from the tree then. No, afraid not. <laughs> <laughs> well, very cool. Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for sharing a lot of, you know, I, like I said, I know that mentioned this, well, it's it's impossible to cover everybody's sure. you yeah, know yeah. histories and stuff in in totality in an hour ish you know mm. time frame, mm. but I appreciate you kind of in general sharing all these different experiences. It's it's really interesting and I mean as far as you know your personal falconry again though kind of going back to that like what do you think in all the years that you were flying birds was one of your more memorable uh, hunting stories flights uh, experiences with a particular bird um i mean i'm sure you've got a lot of stories but oh yeah no, no look i'll keep you here till midnight but <laughs> 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 yeah i know um I, I think it's it's wrong to 
to focus on any particular bird because every every bird uh, has its its strong points and its weak points. And I've always maintained that the most important thing with falconry is not obviously not whether you catch something or, or, or you don't catch something, but does the bird give its best? Is the bird you know, or is it just a sort of a you know half-hearted flight? But so I get just as big a thrill out of seeing an African goshawk fly off the fist and catch a little dicky bird rather than seeing a hundred flights from the Afghos out the window of a car. Um, you know, because the the bird that's flying off the fist uh, when you're walking up quarry is going to really give it stick. It's going to give it everything. Um, the same with the black spar flights. Uh, you know, with the lana flights, I, uh, I've seen spectacular flights. The one lana flight that I had was on a Swainson's, uh, not a Swainson's, uh, Cape Franklin, which is quite a big Franklin, the Coxway up to about a, uh, just over a kilo. And uh, the lana came down and smacked this cock uh, so hard that both of them passed out. And uh, there I came upon the hawk and the quarry lying on the ground next to each other. And I thought, which one shall I grab first? <laughs> Obviously grab the quarry because <laughs> the hawk you can always lure down later. And, uh, yeah, so that was one of the memorable flights that I had with the lana. And then um, with the... Uh, uh, with the hybrids that I've flown, the, 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 well, before that was, was uh, Peregrine. Um, uh, it was an imprint, Peregrine, the first one that was bred in this country. And, and uh, she was a complete darling uh, uh, called Helen. And uh, she, she laid eggs for me. Um, she incubated for me. And then I thought, well, let's see if we can get it to rear things. And so I put in there uh, three different age chicks from a small downy, uh, African goshawk to a middle range um, a peregrine to a to a nearly fledged peregrine that needed parent rearing, and uh, she just fed them all. She just you know, and for me that was really truly remarkable to see this maternal instinct in in a supremely efficient hunter. You know, she uh, really was a beautiful hunter. I remember Mike Nichols coming out to me. Um, he was from the University of Canterbury uh, and uh, obviously colleague of Dave Pepler's as well. And uh, he said to Dave, you know, I really would like to go and see some falconry in Africa when he's here. So uh, Dave said, yeah, you know, a friend of mine, he, he's, he's flying some nice birds. So at that stage I had this uh, female peregrine imprint and then I had a, a, a TSL peregrine that I'd bred in subsequent years. And was uh, I said, sure, you know, come out. And, and we went and we uh, the, the female was very efficient at duck and literally within a minute and a half of, of slipping her, the duck was in the bag. And uh, the, we then went after some Franklin with a tissel and we put the Franklin in the bag and uh, Mike's jaw just hung up and he said, you know, he, he always dreamed of falconry in Africa, but he never thought he'd see two kills before breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> so that was those peregrine kills then or flights. Then, then there was, um, the, the the hybrids such as peregrines that I've flown I've flown two of them and uh, one a tessel and one a falcon and both of them were were truly spectacular aerial um, uh, well machines they were just machines uh, and it was a little bit like getting into a Lamborghini after you've been driving Volkswagen for your whole life <laughs> uh, so it was wonderful to fly the uh, fly those um, uh, I yeah. 
and the the Tiesel is is now about twenty years old, still still alive. Um, but uh, yeah, I won't go into any particular details ex except to mention that uh, those birds could stand up on their tails. Um, they really were unbelievable birds and in and incredibly intelligent, which which I really enjoyed because. Um, you know, most of the other birds that I'd flown, they were nice birds and they flew well and all that sort of stuff, but I wouldn't regard them as intelligent. Whereas you put the joy into it and all of a sudden there's a, it's a game changer. Uh, my regret is that I've never had a chance to fly a pure joe. Um I uh, probably never will, but uh, that's just, you know, you can't do everything. No, no, you can't. And... Yeah, if you try to, it, you're just going to drive yourself nuts. You yeah, know, it's it's yeah. um it's it's an endless pursuit that, unfortunately, I mean, it's just like anything else. I mean, we're gonna we're always <laughs> we're unfortunately probably gonna be in our deathbeds yeah. wishing there was there was enough time for just one more, yeah, just one more. <laughs> and it's so funny that you say that because just one more is a is a saying in our in our particular hunting group too. I mean, yeah, a, yeah my uh, <laughs> it's um. Yeah, it's it's funny, man. Like well, Rockefeller was asked how much is enough money, and he answered just a little more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Just uh, there's there's nothing, you know. Whenever you you everybody's caught something, and there's game in the bag, and you know, whenever you hear the words "just one more," because you know somebody wants to catch just one more bunny or whatever, yeah. you're just like. But it's lunch and I'm hungry. I'm yeah. <laughs> time to go. <laughs> let's, let's wrap it up, fellas. But no, that's uh, that's so funny. It really is pretty much the same everywhere, you know. Yeah. But um, well, like I said, Edmund, I, I really appreciate you, um, you know, doing this. And uh, you know, it's been like it's been great getting this experience this week. And I wish I had more time. I sure. you know, I mean, a week in 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 any new place just it really isn't enough yeah and um yeah. but we do with the we do what we can with the time that's we're that we're given unfortunately yeah. but that's uh, it yeah but anyway like i said thank you for agreeing to do this and um i do want to end though on one last note and just get um you know one particular piece of advice from you or a, a sentiment or something that you'd like to, to pass on to, to current and future generations of falconers. And uh, we'll go ahead and, and wrap it up. Sure. Yeah, I think the important thing is to enjoy what you're doing at the time. Don't keep on saying, you know, this is just a stepping stone. Uh, you know, I wish I could finish up with this AFCOS because I want to have Lana. Or I wish I could finish with this Lana because I want to have this. Whatever you're doing, just... Give it your best and enjoy the time with it because the time passes by so quickly, you know, before you blink, you're old. So, uh, uh, yeah. And and don't think of one bird as better than a next another bird. You know, don't think of an AFCOS as an inferior bird because um, the C-grade birds, the guys have to have to fly them. Um, we had one falconer in the in the club that was an A grade falconer, and he used to fly Afghosis, and he was happy. It was the only bird that he really loved flying, and and he flew them really well. And yeah, so enjoy what you're doing, and uh, yeah, have fun. <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you again, and um, need to finish our drinks here, and then um, get on to this evening's festivities. Thanks very much. All right. Thanks, Alrighty. everybody.